Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, the podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. This episode, I'm joined by Ken Liu, the author of Grace of Kings, as well as A Fishtrap to begin the end of our podcast obsession with Grace of Kings. As an aside, I would like to heartily recommend the sequel Wall of Storms, which I'm working through now, and which advances Grace of Kings in really interesting ways. I don't think there are going to be 17 episodes on Wall of Storms. Uh, But here's the first part of my discussion with Ken and A. Fistrap, focusing on what's going on with the various styles and heroic episodes within the novel. One of the things I was trying to do with the novel is this idea of examining history and examining the ways that history becomes history. So in some passages, right, remember one of the big themes that I have in a lot of my work really is, is the idea of foundational myth and how by myth making we also end up defining who we are that is the way we live our lives is about telling ourselves a story right so for example a very popular question to ask writers is when did you decide you want to be a writer you know how did you decide you want to be a writer uh and writers i i think i i don't know about other writers but i hate answering that question because it, it's it's a question that forces you to make up a myth because the real answer is idiotically mundane, because often there is no such moment when that happens, and there's no such origin story where, you know, Athena comes out and says, you're a writer, and then you become a writer. There's just no story like that. Uh, and so you're forced to, to come up with some story that is sort of true, if not entirely factually accurate, that is somewhat pleasing to a listener and inspiring. A lot of our lives, uh, a lot of the important events in our lives are done that way. You know, they happen fortuitously because of some random coincidence. And later on, to give it meaning, you have to formulate a narrative, you have to tell a story about it and and give it a cause and effect. What I was trying to do in, in parts of The Grace of Kings, especially with these origin stories, is to sort of highlight and foreground the artificiality of these stories, because the stories are being told already as though they were legends and myths even though they were supposedly, in the, in the meta context of the novel, supposedly stories about actual people happening. In my early discussion with A. Fishtrap, we thought about the first three chapters as a procession from the exotic to the mundane. Emperor Mepidere's fantastic, and there we even say exotic or oriental procession, Mata's heroic story, and then Kuni's story. Here's Ken's view of This Way Into the Book. The first one is, this is the myth as you expect it. You've got the pagoda, you've got the dancing girls, you've got the logograms, and blah, blah, blah. And then the second chapter is, here is the origin of the myth as you expect myths to be, where it's, you know, family tragedy, and then he works his way up, and he's going to rise back up and reclaim what his family had. And then the third chapter is, here's how the myth really happens. So it's like a layer after a layer in terms of the reader expectations of how a mythic story begins. And so the novel really begins in that third chapter with Cooney. And that was kind of what we were saying, that that each chapter was, here's what you thought you would get. No, 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 no. Okay, here's what you thought. No, 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 no. Here's the real story. So that I like was, that. I like that. This is where uh, he didn't plan that at all. So, so, so what I was doing was something um, slightly different in intent, but uh, I, it looks like the effect is ultimately similar. So one of the things that I tried to do in Grace of Kings was to play with multiple registers of narrative. 
So there are some sections that are written in this very, very high epic sort of voice. This is this is how a myth begins. This is where you invoke the muse and then you say, "Sing, goddess!" Uh, you know, here here comes the high uh, the high perspective. And the first two chapters are sort of like that. One of them uh, is very evocative of very old Western epics. In that, in that sort of the the second chapter, and the other one is very evocative of sort of high cinema visions of epic storytelling. It's it's how it's how modern films, uh, you know, done by Hollywood would try to portray a story uh, of this sort. They would start off this very high spectacle kind of drama thing. But you know, it's not just Hollywood. Hollywood is tapping into a very old tradition, and so in some ways, I was trying to evoke the the the, the very old stylized opera kind of format uh traditional chinese folk opera uh that are very spectacle oriented and then they try to tell the main point uh with uh with with a song if you will uh, that's very stylized and and very artificial the third chapter on the other hand is very much evocative of uh, ping shu storytelling it's uh, it's it's the oral low art form this is the one where it's just a storyteller in a tea house trying to tell you a historical romance stories that are based on history but are really romances uh, that 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 are that have very little to do with actual history and yet at the same time these storytellers uh, tales are often the, the the folk version of history that most people know um, and so in the third chapter that's the tone that's that's being taken um, it's a it's it's a much lower tone in terms of, of perspective. We're no longer concerned about grand issues of family, dyna- family uh, uh, fate. Uh, we're no longer talking about honor and, and glory of, of, of the entire nation. We're really talking just about one dude and who wants to, who wants to drink for free, essentially. That's, that's what he wants. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, that's his highest ambition in life. Uh, he wants to be nice to his friends and he wants to he wants to he wants to drink for free, uh, and he's he's a little bit of a of a, of a he's got a swagger. He's he's got this kind of you know very very uh, market oriented <laughs> attitude to everything. And yet the the ultimate point is that all these registers of storytelling are important. Uh, you cannot tell a story without reaching all these registers. Just as Cooney eventually has to learn that it takes all kinds to build a nation. So well, that's kind of the intent. That first chapter was the only place you mentioned anything that would really fall in that category of that quintessential Hollywoodized Asianness mm-hmm, of mm-hmm, pagodas mm-hmm. and elephants and logograms and dancing girls. And I think there were a number of things that we even called out that those are the only places in the entire 195,000 words that those <laughs> words were used. And we figured that was kind of intentional, that there seemed like this setup at the very beginning of get this all out of the way. Yes, yes, that's definitely true. Because with a novel like this, where you start off by saying, you know, the, the essential myth is Chinese, and we're trying to, I'm trying to do a reimagining of a, of a foundational Chinese myth um, using this new vocabulary of, of what I call soap punk. And then one of the first things I kind of have to do is to say, look, you know, we're going to leave the shore, if you, if you will. And the first thing we got to do is to paint you the port we're departing from. So here's what people expect when they hear a story that's based on Chinese characteristics. 
So we'll set that out and um, sort of show how we're not going to be using these elements in that way. Uh, and then from that point down, we're leaving the shore and we're leaving that behind. I love that, that image and that metaphor because for all of the railing against, oh, another generic pseudo-medieval European setting that shows up, it feels like because, in some ways, because there have been so many of those, the weight of any individual story or vision on kind of the next book that has a pseudo-medieval European setting is maybe a little bit less. But yeah, I probably had two or three stories and movies in my head that came vaguely from China. And that was kind of my image of what a Chinese-inspired story would be. And, and I really like the idea of, of kind of being at the port and then setting out from that and saying, okay, I understand what your expectations are, but let's move move on and move beyond. And I would imagine that that probably presented its, its, its own challenges. Yeah, there, there, there were multiple issues. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the big fears I had with the book uh, before I finished it was um, whether people are going to say this is not Chinese enough uh, that, that they're going to say where are your chopsticks you know where are the kowtowing uh, ministers where are the where's, where's your wise dragon uh, yeah and all that stuff you know, it's like, oh. like, there are certain things people want you know it's like there, there are supposed to be some, some scholars uh, uh, standing around spewing about loyalty to the emperor, right? There's, there's got to be something oh, about honor to the family. Yeah, mandate yeah. to the mandate of heaven, right? We got to bring that up, um, <laughs> which is, which is, you know, comical because none of those things are actually Chinese at all. They are, they are Chinese as perceived by somebody who is not Chinese, mm-hmm. which, which is, you know, why it's comical. I mean, a lot of the things about how readers react to the grace of kings is pretty interesting because there are actually super, super Chinese things in the book, but they're very deep. And, and sometimes they're not perceived as Chinese at all. I mean, for example, a lot of people have commented on the fact that uh, it feels very Japanese to them because people sit on the ground uh, and people have elaborate sitting positions. Uh, and there are all these talks about, you know, warriors who, who have this code that seems, seems samurai-like. Which is kind of comical to me because the reason they probably seem Japanese to a lot of readers is because the classical Chinese tradition I'm drawing on, especially around the Han, the time of the Han Dynasty, uh, was very like that. People did sit on the ground. They did not sit on chairs. That, that happened much later. Uh, elaborate sitting positions were, in fact, the case. Uh, and, and this code of warrior ethics was very much the, uh, the ethic of uh, the Warring States period. Um, it might remind people of Japanese uh, in that the high culture of, of uh, Japanese medieval culture in some ways uh, shares the same root. As Ken mentioned, there are these heroic episodes in which many questions of tone and style, mythology and history come into play. We're going to take a look at a few of the heroic episodes and characters, beginning with the Rebellion of the Fish. The rebellion starts with two of these characters who um, who are not really uh, who don't really have huge ambition. They they were just desperate. They were captains of, of a bunch of corvée laborers, and and they had no choice but to rebel. And and the way they rebel is they 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 create this fake message from the gods by putting it inside a fish. And, yes, and, the two uh, goons. That's right. what they were. They the two goons. Yes, the two goons. <laughs> 
they play this trick to fool their followers into believing them. But but if you remember later on, there's this episode where one of them says, "Well, you know, let's 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 look back on that episode a little bit and think about what actually happened." Could it not be that the gods inspired us to come up with that idea in the first place? So maybe it actually is true. I mean, we made that myth up at the time, but maybe it's actually true. And in terms of the court historians writing this down, I think you should write it down as though it's true. It actually happened that way. The gods really did inspire us, and the gods really did put the message there. I'm actually believing it myself. But that's that's kind of how it happens.、Uh, and that was sort of the the overall. Move I wanted to make. Now I'm going to pass the baton to Charles Pesur for some timely short fiction recommendations. Hi everyone, my name is Charles Pesur, and I'll be recommending some speculative short fiction today. There is a part of me that wants nothing more than to provide some stories that are unabashedly fun and funny and light, because our current situation is anything but. Ignoring what has happened, though, or even encouraging others to ignore it, would seem irresponsible to me. Right now, there is fear, yes, and anxiety, and worry, and stress. But I think that at times like this, the thing we have to remember is resistance. That in the face of injustice and growing inequality and a growing feeling of threat, there is still strength to be taken from standing for what is right. To not. Looking away from the difficult realities we find ourselves in, a lot of sci-fi and fantasy deals explicitly with that. And today, I want to share some of my recent favorites that deal with themes of resistance in the face of oppression and violence. First up is a brand new story from Omanano's November issue, Screamers, by Tochi Onyebuchi, which follows a father brought over from Africa to be a police officer and his son, who eventually follows in his footsteps. The piece centers on a series of violent explosions that perplex the police until they discover the source. That these aren't bombs, but the condensed essences of African Americans dealing with living under the constant institutional oppression of America, dealing with the racism and the hatred, finally able to strike back in the form of a deadly scream, a deadly empathy, which is what I feel the story is ultimately about. The danger and the power of empathy and expression, the danger for those who benefit from hate, and the power of those living under hate's shadow, to express themselves in a way that others understand and resonate with, sometimes to violent effect. It's an amazing read. The second story is *The Gentleman of Chaos* by A. Mercurstad from August's Apex Magazine. Which is another story that looks at a main character forced to work for an oppressive system, in this case for an unjust king, and through this work, the main character, who has to live under a false name and identity assigned him by the king, is used to protect the system, to prop it up, to keep the king safe. But the story shows the power of resistance, of taking control of your own narrative, and ultimately being able to fight back. To destroy the lies and the systems of injustice, and find some level of peace and hope that the future can be better. It's a dark but beautiful story, and very worth checking out. Next is *Plea* by Mary Anne Mohanraj from October's Lightspeed magazine. The story shows a family waiting in line, which might not seem that compelling a premise, 
but they're trying to escape a growing violence against people like them, people who have been genetically modified to live better with their situation. And the violence coming from people who are intolerant of this, who see them as having unfair advantages, who want to make humanity more human again, like that's an actual thing. And they're trying to immigrate to avoid the violence threatening them. And the two mothers, Gwen and Rose, having have to make a heartbreaking decision in the face of what those they're trying to seek protection with decide about their case. So it's a story about immigration that is heavy and difficult and reveals that resistance can mean leaving a dangerous system behind and can also mean not being able to. Definitely grab a full, firm hold of your feels before reading this one and even then probably be prepared to cry because I definitely did. Standing on the Flood Banks by Bogi Takash is another story about seeking an escape or seeping, seeking to escape an oppressive government, an unjust and violent situation, only to find that in conflicts often there is no just side, which I think is something that we don't see enough in science fiction and fantasy. The main character, uh Anie, goes from a tool of war on one side to the opposing side wanting to use her in the same way. Only through the intervention of someone with power is Anie able to resist to find her own path, which involves exposing the injustices she finds on both sides of the conflict and choosing to work for peace instead of serving a brutal war. And I don't think the fact that Anie needs to rely on aid lessens the the theme of resistance in the piece because it's often the situation that those with power do need to give that to other people, do need to protect people in order to to um, give them the opportunity to resist and express themselves and find a way forward. And lastly, I want to talk about the book of How to Live by Rose Lemberg from Benici Sky's Anniversary October issue. Um, this story reveals a city where the magically named and the magicless unnamed live very different lives. Where the magicless, where to be magicless is to be lesser, and where a group of those without magical names but with keen intellects and driving passions to fulfill their potentials decide that they aren't content with the scraps they are being offered. This is a story about how resistance can begin, about pushing back past hesitation and doubts from all sides and working for something righteous and the world building of the piece is strong and this is a bird for a story and i'm just such a fan of that setting and the narratives coming out of it um it's an amazing read and one that i've returned to again and again in recent days and weeks to try and remind myself about the work of resistance about how to go forward even in the face of growing difficulties and tensions. So yeah, there you have it. If you want even more speculative stories on the theme of resistance, I have a large list that came out recently at QuickSip Reviews. Otherwise, stand strong and fight on. Thank you, Charles. We'll return to the interview with Ken and the idea of the stories we tell and how they shape the world we inhabit. Back a little bit to to Ken, your your anecdote about asking writers when they chose to be a writer. The number of times 
that people will ask about the five-year-old and the two-year-old. Oh, were they always so quiet? Were they always so, you know, and it's like, well, no, they were never always anything. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> They've only been on the planet for five years. We, we like to tell stories. Yes, we like to tell stories. We we like to tell stories not just as individuals, but as nations. We we love to tell origin stories about you know the the origin of of the Anglo-Saxon character, the origin of the American nation. Uh, we we love these stories. Immigrants, we get the job done. For a lot of these heroes, they have these unbelievable origin stories, and the question is, do they believe it or not? Right. The one of the key differences between Mata and Cooney is Mata end up believing his story. That's what um, Lady Mira's critique and um, sort of conversation with him was about. Mira says, look, everybody tells you who you are, and you end up believing that. And that's why you're so sad, because you, you are living the stories other people tell you are your stories. And that is why you're sad. And that's why you're, 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 you're always worried. And that's why you're always unhappy. I'm not like that. And that's why, even though I am not anything like you. I don't have your power. I am much better than you in a lot of ways. And that was Lady Mira's point. Um, whereas with Cooney, if you recall, he's had those incredible myth-making moments. You know, he, he, he takes up a sword and he chops off a snake's head and, and, and everyone thinks, like, this is, this, this is important. And it means that he's going, to be, he's going to be the king. He's going to be the emperor. He's going to be awesome. Um, but even near the very end of the book, he doesn't believe these stories, right? Because Kogo is like, Kogo makes up, you know, this terrible interpretation of, of the gods' portents and says, oh, this means that the gods are all in favor of you. Yay, you know, let's celebrate. Uh, and Kuni says, who knows what the gods really think? Uh, and Kogo says, well, that doesn't really matter. The people care about what you think. That's all that matters. And Kuni says, yeah, I guess you're right. But, but even at that moment, Cooney knows that, you know, he's not favored by the gods. He doesn't really believe in favor of the gods. Even at that moment, he does not believe that origin story the way Mata believes in his origin story. Anyway, so that's kind of where I was going with that. There's this fundamental sort of yearning uh, by, by a lot of the characters, at least, that the world and the universe is knowable. Uh, and that's, that's fundamentally a very science fictional idea. Uh, and so that's why there are large parts of it where the, the, the mental outlook of the characters and, and the way the, the book treats the world is that, that kind of science fictional yearning for, for sense of wonder. Uh, and it's not necessarily uh, based on, on the supernatural, but rather on the very idea of, of humans being able to accomplish great things through the power of technology. Uh, and that is a theme that gets developed more later on in the other books. Um, that, that tends to become a more dominant note, if you will. You are now making me wonder what this book would be like if Mata had won instead of Kuhn. It would be a very different world, right? A very yeah. different world. Instead of a favored book this episode, I'm going to dip into the archives, looking back to when Kip and I talked about books for kids, and a lovely quote from Margaret Wise Brown, the author of Good Night Moon. Good Night Moon, Margaret Wise Brown. Yes. Who studied with, basically, um, is, is writing this under the influence of the theories of, of Gertrude Stein about getting at language and, and learning how kids are going to learn. And she said something marvelous about children being absolutely the best audience for just 
the raw, primal music of poetry. And that, one of the things that I'm always concerned with, perhaps overly much when I'm writing, is the sound of a sentence, the way that it sounds, the the rhythm that it strikes and how they flow in a paragraph. So just reading that and, and you're finding this connection so long ago in something that, you know, I remember from when I was very small. Mm-hmm. She was writing a paper on books for five-year-olds. Uh, she describes a child who, quote, carries with him the glamour of the two-year-old's own small self, the three-year-old's humor and love of pattern, and four-year-old's first playful flights into the humor of incongruous things. And finally, the five-year-old's careful watching of his own eyes and ears. Here is an audience sensitive to the sheer elements of the English language. Translate their playfulness and serious use of the sheer elements of language into the terms and understandings of a five-year-old. And you have as intelligent an audience in rhythm and sound as the maddest poet's heart could desire. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.